Put aside the ego and embrace the moment. That's not the moment that you're embracing right now. Oh, dear. Regardless, it's time for another midweek drive transcontinental adventure. And it is time now for that regular informational aspect, which is also packed full of entertainment and other delightful things, courtesy of Tipperary. It's our very own Jenny Finch, writer extraordinaire, with another Tipperary tale. Go, Jenny. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Thank you, everyone, who commented and expressed sympathy for our car troubles. We are still without transport, but I can report we are moving forward. The garage behind our first cottage have been magnificent and they will collect the car on Monday. They will give it a quick pre-check, take it for the test and return it the next day. Hopefully we can then get some insurance and leave our latest in forced isolation. Regarding the insurance, I would like to offer some information. Many people in the UK use the comparison websites for insurance quotes. It's quick, easy, and often offers a decent price. What is not made clear is these are actually considered brokers, not a problem in England, but at the root of our dilemma here. We have been puzzled by the refusal of some companies to insure us. We cover courage, one company boasts. Yes, but you won't cover two retired lecturers for about 6,000 kilometres a year to drive to the shops, will you? Something was off and we were determined to find out what it was. It took some perseverance, but someone finally admitted they didn't accept a foreign no claims discount, especially from a broker. This is partly due to COVID where people working from home are unable to do detailed record searches. The impact of Brexit makes sharing of data a gray area compounding the problem. Any evidence of a no claims record from a comparison site often cannot be verified in a reasonable time, so it is rejected. Now you may think this is interesting, but not relevant to you. But if you need foreign car insurance, it can be devastating. And we never thought we'd need to insure our car in another country either. Despite this ongoing headache, this week has been much better for us. The building work has resumed and we are creeping towards luxuries such as a modern boiler. At present, we cannot heat the water without running the heating, which in the recent heat wave was less than ideal. We tried opening the windows, but this brought the plague of flies inside, along with wasps, butterflies, and worst of all, horseflies. We've installed fly screens on the door and windows and occasionally have a mass hunt using those clever tennis rackets that zap them when you get a hit. In the morning, it sounds like a machine gun in the lobby. There are so many. The horseflies seem to love Jackie, and we are investing in a range of cures, as well as researching preventative measures. Our beautiful old Tibetan terrier, Saffron, suffered from bad ears all her life, and we found a cream used for thrush was the best thing for them. It works wonders on the horsefly bites too. Hooray for mild steroids. A friend told us about a wristband used by horse riders to deter them. 
Much to my delight, I learnt it was called Naff Off, which is what I say constantly when out in the wood. I can't wait to try them. Speaking of the wood, we still try to get out for an hour or so most days. We are concentrating on the top end where the oak trees are, and it seems to be paying off. After some heavy work, we've stripped the worst of the brambles and the choking ivy away. Whole heaps of nettles are consigned to the compost heap. And as we moved further back, we discovered several more oaks. These are obviously older trees, better established, but still struggling. Each tree may take several days to strip away all the parasitic invaders, but already the nearest is looking better and I am hopeful we can save them. I'm not sure the tiny tree at the front will survive, though we're going to remove the sapling next to it to give it a bit more of a chance. If it doesn't, we will replace it with a new tree, another oak. And sometimes you find something rather disturbing in the undergrowth. This week, I unearthed a couple of old shotgun shells and a snare, now disabled, of course. But next to them, buried in the earth, was a boot, sole upwards. I just hope the rest of the owners isn't in there, head down. Unless it's the illegal hunter, in which case I hope it is. Another week flew by, and another week without transport here in the depths of rural Ireland. The insurance saga grinds on, though I feel we may be making some progress. The garage collected the car at stupid o'clock on Tuesday and checked it over. Not surprisingly, it passed the NCT, the Irish MOT, and we have the precious certificate for the insurance company. Just one problem though, they demanded physical proof of the NCT, either a copy in the post or a fax. No, they said, they had no incoming mailbox, so a PDF was not possible. The nearest postbox is about five kilometres away, and who the hell still has a fax at home? So thank you to our lovely builder, who drove into town especially to put it in the post. Now we wait and hope. This is one aspect of normal service we really do need to resume. We rely rather heavily on deliveries at the moment for obvious reasons. And Jackie has been very proactive in dealing with our current wave of unwanted and uninvited residents. It's been much cooler these past weeks, just as well as the local farmers appear to be emptying their slurry tanks over the county in preparation for winter. We often do not open the windows, which at least keeps out the smell and a lot of the flies. There are fewer when it is cool, but it is still a relentless infestation. It will be better next year as we're rooting out the hatching areas inside. We are also removing the main attractions in the garden, including three Leylandi trees they seem to love. We are far less enthusiastic and hope to get them out and replace them with something smaller and native. In the meantime, we have a very wide range of products to combat the flies, horseflies, wasps and mosquitoes. The biggest step forward this week was finally getting the gas boiler in and running. 
The gas tank was installed back in May and filled in June, but we were still relying on the old oil boiler for hot water, which it refused to supply unless we were running the heating. Now we can turn on the tap and, presto, hot water. You really don't know how happy that makes you unless you've had to rely on immersion heaters or slow warming tanks. There are a lot of things that are different here and we just get used to them. But this was one thing we could change. As far as we are concerned, it comes under the heading quality of life. It also frees up a big area at the back of the Majestic for storage and controls when the solar panels go in later this year. Hopefully we will have a reliable water supply and heating for the winter. Almost normal service. So on to developments on the writing front. This whole project has meant I've scarcely written anything for several years. All the sources and reference books, notes and pictures were packed away along with my trusty computer. There is an old Jewish saying with thanks to Rabbi Blue. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. In the absence of contact with readers, bookshops, and libraries, the plans I had drifted away. They became inconsequential next to the real life drama we were living. When we moved into the house, I discovered my lovely big writing desk was missing and we had no way to replace it. It seems a small thing in the whole big adventure, but it was almost the last straw. Then I began this blog, just a few words every week, but the discipline has been very good for me. My writing corner is still small and crowded, but we hope to locate another table soon, when we can drive again, of course. I found some of the maps I'd marked up in a box and the original manuscripts for the first five novels too. Yes, there is a fifth book with the publishers and there are plans for the next year. Those of you who have followed this page since the beginning may remember I used to make a paper crane every day I wrote a thousand words. My garlands were left behind in the studio. But finally, this week, I made a start on book six of the Alex Hastings series. And so I've made my first Irish paper crane. It has been a long and occasionally painful journey, but gradually, Normal service is being resumed. Another example of Tipperary Tales at its finest there. So, Jenny, clearly uh, it might be worth putting just a slight uh, nod to the direction of the people who are listening to this uh, when it's the joys of March or April uh, in 2022 uh, and thinking, but we have just had the summer, etc. Of course, uh, you're looking back in time here at these Tipperary Tales. They're not necessarily as current as people might think. No, I'm I'm gradually catching up, but no, they're um they're about six months behind, I think, oh, or ahead, depending on your perception with respect to time. Uh, so, what's this with not having a fax machine? I mean, surely everybody has to have a fax machine. I mean, you, you know, you've got to have the physicality <laughs> in there. None of this PDF nonsense. What's going on? <laughs> well, we had a fax machine, um, and apart from anything else, it requires a landline. And we have no landline because it will take uh, probably four or five little Irishmen a week to dig the mile and a half down our road 
to bury a cable. And that will cost a small fortune. We have no landlines at all out here. Well, clearly, having just celebrated St. Patrick's Day, I'm sure that uh, the leprechaun landmine layers will be uh, looking to actually get something sorted through that. Actually, I should say landline layers as opposed to landmine layers, because that obviously sets them <laughs> off to a whole different field entirely, which yeah, I'm sure they wouldn't want to go in for. Not in the present climate, at least. Uh, so enjoying life in general, it has to be said. In general, yes, we are. We're doing OK. Um, we're just about getting the solar panels finished and we're working away on the house and we've made some friends and uh, I'm writing again. So well, everything is good. Coming up next, we'll be finding out about uh, how you can actually take part in a uh, balloon project which could actually help put human beings on Mars. Uh, all part, of the, part, of the, part and parcel of National Science Week and so on. Uh, and we'll find out about why Visit England is promoting their particular tourist aspects. Uh, and I'm sure one of these days, Jenny, you might return and, and visit England as, as, a, as a tourist, but we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, a reminder, how can people get in touch with your good self? How can people actually access your books, texts, etc.? Uh, uh, is everything duly online, Instagrammed and otherwise? Um, yes, you can catch me on Facebook or Twitter, you can visit my website just by typing Jenny Finch, all one word with an IE, dot me dot UK. And you can get the books as Kindles or as physical books, either from my publisher, Impress Books, or from Amazon. And still no sign, still no sign of a TikTok uh, account for your good self. And Jackie to actually do some TikTok dances? Uh, probably not at this point. It's been a bit cold and wet. We're a bit clunky. Robot dancing, maybe. Well, back in the day, David Bowie might have been singing about life on Mars. Of course, the Mysterons came from Mars and H.G. Wells wrote about the Martians. And we've had this fascination with Mars for quite some time. But maybe, just maybe in the 21st century, who knows, people might be stepping out on the Martian surface uh, to talk us through this and why actually it's important that science, technology, uh, education, mathematics are very much the fore of our educational forefront as well. We're delighted to welcome uh, that ace uh, soul from the world of astrophysics and indeed award-winning science presenter, so wonderful Dr. Emma Osborne. How are you, Emma? Hi, I'm good, thank you, Alex. How are you? Excellent. Although I must admit, um, I was uh, particularly inspired with William Shatner, who at the age of 90 obviously travelled uh, uh, beyond the Earth's atmosphere. Um, do you think that uh, we can actually look forward to maybe heading off to Mars as well, do you feel? I think it's definitely appearing on the horizon. There's a lot going on in space exploration at the moment. It's a very exciting time. Well, certainly it uh, would seem in many ways we uh, need to almost adopt that policy of actually uh, leaving the planet whilst it sorts its own challenges out. Nevertheless, <laughs> this particular survey that we've got here uh, that suggests that obviously two-fifths of parents think that the first person to set foot on Mars will be within their child's lifetime. Uh, it does kind of echo that buzz that those of us who are fortunate enough to be around uh, when Neil Armstrong took his first steps onto the Earth, Earth's natural um, a satellite, uh, that, that maybe there is that kind of enthusiasm again, or, or is it a case of it's another false horizon? Oh, I don't think it's a false horizon at all. I think um, uh, there's, it's quite 
uh, appropriate. There's a lot going on. And I feel like sometimes the moon landing can feel like quite a while ago, especially for those of us who weren't alive at the time, were waiting to be born. But there's so much that's happened in the last 120 years. When you think uh, it was 120 years ago that aeroplanes were invented, and yet last year we've sent a billionaire as a tourist into space. Uh, there's a lot going on, and there's been a real push in the space industry um, recently. And actually, the UK wants to be a global space superpower. So I think it's very well-placed enthusiasm. Now, clearly, that sounds wonderful, but it does seem as though a large number of parents, in fact, 88% of parents, think that there are actually barriers uh, to children who might be considering a, a career in astrophysics or indeed science engineering or its associated subjects. Uh, we're in British Science Week, uh, and this seems to be almost a, a regular thing that we're always saying, look, science is not difficult, it's just a different way of looking at the world, etc. And I'm speaking as a chemistry and biology graduate myself, you can actually learn to appreciate science and enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the, the barriers that people think of are quite perceptive barriers. And I think we do, we're all guilty of this, myself included, when there's like a new discovery that's come out, it's like, oh, have you heard they've found this out or they've discovered this? And we use this word they, like, as if it's some abstract, untangible thing. But they quite often mean scientists. And what I really wanted to talk to you about today is um, this Mars balloon project that's run by Tarlesilenia Space. And I'm really supportive of this project because it's for UK school students to design their own experiment that they can test in conditions that are similar to those on the surface of Mars. And why I think this is really get great is because it's very accessible. It's making space exploration uh, accessible to young people by putting them at the heart of it through this fun hands-on experience where they get to plan a space mission using everyday objects. And in doing that, it's distilling this notion of the barriers or perceived barriers that there may be with um, pursuing science, technology, engineering and maths subjects and careers. You're absolutely right, of course. In June this year, this project is going to be launching over 150 experimental capsules designed by UK school children up into the atmosphere via high-altitude balloons. We have indeed come a long way since Joe and Wilbur Orville Wright uh, actually put, took their steps along, and indeed the early aeronauts before then. Um, is this something which gives that, uh, that hands-on experience that actually means that you know, there's no experience ultimately for the practical, no matter how wonderful or theoretical it might be? In terms of the actual thing, Emma, do you feel that this practical aspect of, uh, uh, say, capsules going up into there, do you think that's, that's going to be something which is, is clearly going to energise and innovate people's interest in, in science through the practical? I think so, yes, because what it really does is it takes everything that young people are learning at school out of the textbooks, out of the classroom and puts it into a real world situation. And what happens is these capsules, they're going to be attached to a weather balloon, which, which is going to go 30 kilometres up into the atmosphere. And up there, it's a lot colder. It's minus 30 degrees Celsius. The earth, uh, sorry, the air is a lot thinner. It's 100th 
the thickness or the pressure that we experience down here at sea level. Um, the UV radiation is doubled and it's 30% brighter sunlight. And that's what their experiments are going to be exposed to. Eventually the balloon will pop and then the experiment will fall down to the ground and the experiments will be sent back to the students who designed it. Uh, but also there's going to be cameras and tracking on board so they can follow the journey or see how what happened on the journey afterwards. And I just think that makes it so much more real. And because the students will be planning this themselves, it gives them authority. Uh, and I think that's such a powerful tool to hopefully, uh, which fosters curiosity uh, because it gives them ownership over what's going on. And it just makes it, um, I just think that's quite an empowering and powerful thing to do to young people. Who or indeed what actually inspired yourself, Emma, to actually go into the world of astrophysics? <laughs> that's a great question. So I uh, would say I had a very... Um, excellent physics teacher who was always bringing cutting edge research into the classroom similar to this project um, and he would talk to us as equals and um, we'd just have discussions about some of the cutting edge stuff and I, I had a natural interest in space and I did particularly enjoy physics and it was at that time, we just discovered that the universe was accelerating as it expanded and nobody knew why. We still don't know why. We call it dark energy now. Um, but this just like these kind of talks really got my mind going and I wanted to know the answers. And it was kind of in one of those moments that I thought, right, I'm going to I'm going to have a career as an astrophysicist and I will find these answers. I haven't found the answers, but that's not the point. <laughs> Well, I'm sure it'll be out there, Emma, and if anybody can find them, you can. Again, just looking at uh, your role of honour so far, the uh, Maths PGI Outreach Award in May 2019, the STEM for Britain finalist also March 2019. You've been rolling into all sorts of others. Of course, the classic line, uh, my own personal favourite, the March 2016 I'm a Scientist Get Me Out of Here competition winner, which was all good from that point of view. Um, you mentioned that Britain's obviously looking to lead the way in terms of this. Is that a realistic option? I mean, we've often heard about this in the past, and then we tend to think, well, we can't possibly compete with the likes of China or indeed America with the kind of assets that they've got? I think it is very realistic. Um, I think the biggest uh, obstacle to overcome at the moment is that the UK is facing a skills shortage in STEM subjects, which those science, technology, engineering and maths. Um, and this Mars Balloon Project is just one way of addressing the issue by hoping to inspire the next generation to be interested in space. But I think it's very realistic. I'm just intrigued by uh, looking to actually fit all your Mars experiments into uh, basically a Kinder Egg capsule, which is uh, uh, extraordinary in terms of actually putting everything into, into place from that point of view. But uh, it will go, as you said, it's uh, certainly up to 30 kilometres and uh, reaching temperatures or lower, heading to temperatures as low as minus 50 degrees centigrade, which is uh, uh, fascinating in, in, in all sorts of ways. So this takes place in June. Share with us, Emma, how people get involved with the Mars Balloon Project. Absolutely. So if you're a UK school student, you need to ask your teacher or a head, an adult who's a head of a science club to register on your behalf. It's completely free to register and participate. Um, and 
to do that, you can just go straight to the website, which is talesgroup.com forward slash en forward slash future Martians. Or alternatively, you can Google Mars Balloon Project 22. And all the information is there. Or if you're already a science teacher, just hop online and register. Of course, but worth one mentioning that uh, Tales is actually T H A L E S, uh, in case people are confusing it with Telos, uh, which of course was a planet in Star Trek, but that's a different line entirely. It's uh, <laughs> a different line entirely. Uh, so it's been delightful connecting with you, good self, uh, today, Emma. I think you certainly uh, raised a whole range of levels and indeed inspirational factors as well. So we've got two final questions for you. Have you had a reasonably interesting Zoomer being the first one? Has it been okay for you? Yes, it's been great. Good. In which case, the next critical question is, will you uh, come back and uh, talk to us again sometime about uh, your own particular uh, specialists and indeed the onset uh, of uh, exploring space, etc.? Will you be kind enough to return? Absolutely. I'd love to. Thank you. Dr. Dr. Emma Osborne, astrophysicist extraordinaire. Huge thanks. And uh, I'll say it. Keep watching the skies. <laughs> Thank you very much. Tourism, it's an essential part of obviously our whole culture, certainly in terms of England. And indeed, it is one of England's largest and most valuable industries, supporting hundreds of thousands of businesses and employing about 2.6 million people. Uh, so given that we are heading into English Tourism Week, we're delighted to welcome today from Indeed Visit England, uh, the fantastically wonderful Andrew Stokes. How are you, Andrew? I'm very well, thank you. And thank you very much for inviting me to talk to you. Well, I'd say you're welcome, but that's almost like a theme that could come out of a Visit <laughs> England programme. So let's let's move back to that, because clearly this will be the uh, the first year post-pandemic where, unless anything else breaks out, and who knows what could happen, uh, we will actually be able to visit a whole range of things. And presumably that's good news for the English tourist industry. Absolutely. And, and and that actually is what this week is all about. It's it's the 10th time we've actually held um, English Tourism Week. And it, it's a, giving us an opportunity to both celebrate our fantastic tourism industry and everything um, that encom encompasses the visitor economy, but also highlight its importance to key stakeholders um, such as you know, MPs, local authorities, um, so that we can all work together to manage that that. Very important industry. I mean, it, it's it's huge money and and um, uh, it's 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 big industry. Uh, people probably don't realise the value and importance of tourism. If I tell you that during the two years of the pandemic, um, we estimate that some seventy-seven billion pounds worth of uh, of income was lost to our tourism industry, you'll realise why for us it's important that um, you know, we do welcome people back. We do um, highlight the fact that we are open for business and the wonderful professionals who work within our industry are also celebrated um, and uh, get an opportunity to do what they do best, which is, um, uh, is, is be hospitable and make sure people have a good time. Now, many people might think if they weren't going to go into the catering industry or other uh, service industries, etc., tourism might well be for them, uh, which is perhaps one of the reasons why you've uh, actually elected as a theme this year to go with skills and careers. Absolutely. I, I think, look, I'm, I'm a prime example. I, I didn't know that I wanted to work in uh, the visitor economy or the hospitality industry or tourism. Um, uh, you know, I, that wasn't something I said when I was asked by a careers teacher what I wanted to do. But 
I sort of fell into it. It was a job I did at university to pad out Grant. And then I realised I loved it. The, you know, um, I loved working with people. I loved ensuring that people had a good time. I mean, what's not to like about that? Um, also, the things that make our tourism industry so great, you know, the cultural offering, um, the sporting offering, uh, the diversity of um, you know, our countryside, our, um, our, our, our wonderful cities offering. You know, so you know, the great cities that are actually quite close together, quite easy to get to, the great cities that we have in this country outside of London are just brilliant and worth exploring. That's certainly a key point because, uh, say, today I travelled up from Lincoln, obviously the home of Siren Radio, up to Teesside and just actually passing on route the whole range of things going through Yorkshire, uh, heading through some of the uh, the more traditional visitor attractions from the more esoteric ones. There's an awful lot that literally is in our own backyards that maybe a lot of people haven't explored or indeed uh, taken a delight in, really. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm, I, I'm actually quite looking forward to something that... Uh, you're creating in Lincolnshire this year. So um, I believe it's it, it, it's the first year of a new, a brand new outdoor festival called the Lincolnshire Wolds, um, which is going to um, celebrate the wealth and diversity uh, that the region has to offer. Awesome. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, 30th of April to the 5th of June. I think you should be there, Alex. Well, certainly. I mean, if I was, I was one of the founders of World's Words, so obviously I need to be at the Lincolnshire Festival as well. We'll make sure things are getting sorted out on that basis. Uh, it's almost as though people who work in this industry could be superstars. So rightly, they should be awarded. So let's talk about the Tourism Superstar Awards, Andrew. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, you know, the, uh, this year, I think more than ever, um, we want an opportunity to highlight uh, you know, the, the people who have... Uh, gone beyond the, 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 the normal, perhaps our unsung heroes, and they are the people that make our offering so wonderful. So um, people have been nominated, and we had a huge number of nominations this year. Uh, we then have a panel who uh, reduces those to, our, um, to, to, to a short list, and then the public vote for them. And so uh, people can go on uh, until next Tuesday. They can go on uh, to the Mirror website, so from the Mirror newspaper, and uh, they can see footage um, of the shortlisted people describing what they do. Um, uh, and, you know, they can see why we think they're superstars and they can vote for their favourite or their local or whatever. But there are some wonderful um, examples of the people who make our industry so special. So I would urge people to go on and, and uh, you know, some lovely videos. Uh, I, I would urge people to go on and have a look at our shortlisted tourism superstars and vote for their favourite. This may be an impossible question to actually answer, but I'm going to throw it at you in any case. Uh, do you have a particular favourite part of England that actually, uh, given the choice, you'd say, I'd quite like to head down to, oh, I don't know, the Cotswolds or indeed uh, the Pennines or other areas? Do you know, that's like asking someone, do they have a favourite child? I mean, that's really... really I, I did say it was going to be an impossible question. <laughs> I, I, there, there are lots of places I love. I lived for many years in uh, the northwest, and so I still have a, a passion for the Lake District. I love the Lake District. Um, my father and family came from Norfolk. I think, uh, you know, Norfolk, one of the great sort, sort of undiscovered gems, you know, and, and I think there's a lot we, we could do with that. Um, yes, uh, 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 this year, I think um, 
uh, you know, absolutely fantastic to be in the Midlands, the year of the Commonwealth Games, the, um, the, the cultural festival, a six month long cultural festival celebrating uh, the culture of a region. Um, you know, great time uh, to be there. I, you know, as I say, I'm, I love events, festivals and, and those sort of things that make a place special. So, um, well, I, I know that my colleagues in Newark would also be uh, very keen to promote the uh, uh, the annual Newark Book Festival, which seems to grow each year. For uh, again, just another classic case of how uh, things are working through. And that's before we even consider things like the Lincolnshire Show, the Great Yorkshire Show, and other areas that are actually part and parcel of the whole sort of system. Uh, let's uh, focus a little bit more in terms of uh, English tourism and finding out details. Would visitbritain.org forward slash English Tourism Week be the best place to go to actually find out further details. That, that, is, that is, if you're going to be very precise, that's great. And thank you very much for doing my job for me. Um, but actually, if you go on to visitengland.com, with a little bit of work, you'll work your way through to that. And for the tourism uh, uh, superstar, as I say, onto the um, the, the, the Mirror website and, and you can vote there. Um, visitengland.com will also give you inspiration of places to visit and things to do. So, um, uh, Yep. Um, I think people should just have fun this week and celebrate uh, all that's good and great about English tourism. Andrew Stokes from Visit England. Huge thanks. And uh, I'm tempted to say happy holidays wherever you happen to go. (laughs) Thank you. Same to you. So where should we actually be looking to actually have a uh, short break or indeed check out various activities and so on and destinations? Well, it would seem that recent research for the National Lottery Open Week suggests that 60% of us still actually focus on TV and film locations. Uh, Paddington Bear for the Natural History Museum, Bletchley Park for the Imitation Game, Hamilton Court Palace for Bridgerton, Pirates of the Caribbean, of course, uh, the Eden Project for Die Another Day, and even the Causeway Coast for the ubiquitous Game of Thrones. Uh, so let's actually uh, explore some more, de- in some more detail uh, the rationale of this and why actually uh, this uh, particular week is just a fantastic opportunity to really make some huge savings. We're delighted to speak to uh, Paul Shabiba from the SS Great Britain Trust. How are you, Paul? Hello, Alex. Very good. Greetings from Bristol and it's lovely to join you. Well, I mean, interesting that I was looking for, for Bristol on this list and it doesn't seem to be there unless I've actually sort of missed out on the whole thing. So does Bristol need more TV series uh, in addition to Holby City to actually get people to turn out and actually attend? Always. I think bring it on. And um, Bristol Harbour, of course, features so much on television, most recently in The Outlaws. And if you've seen the film Stan and Ollie as well, and then go back a few years, Alex, and we were in Skins and Inbetweeners. Uh, but yes, always happy to welcome film and TV because as the survey shows, it's just such a great prompt for wanting to go and explore somewhere that you've seen on the big or the small screen. Yeah. And again, as far as National Lottery Open Week is concerned, presumably uh, this is a, a wonderful asset for people who are maybe a little bit concerned about costs and various other things. It's a real opportunity to get involved with projects like the SS Great Britain Trust and, and, and sort of you know, visit some exciting places. Absolutely. And there are hundreds, literally hundreds of places around the United Kingdom taking part. And it's our opportunity to say, look, A massive thank you to lottery players because the money that they're raising for good causes, the National Heritage Lottery Fund, of course, which we have benefited from with some of the conservation projects here at the SS Great Britain. And I don't know if you knew this, but it's £30 million a week that they're raising for good causes. So this National Lottery Open Week is an opportunity for us to open our arms and say 
thank you. Come and visit. Come and have some exclusive experiences or tours or gifts or, or, or drink items and things. Um, so on the website, lift, different attractions and museums are all offering different ways of saying thank you to lottery players. I mean, hats off as well, Paul, to uh, the fact that uh, the SS Great Britain Trust itself has won more than 50, 5-0, 50 awards, including Permanent Exhibition of the Year, Museums and Heritage Awards 2019, Best UK and Ireland Tourism Project. So you must be doing something right there, Paul, I would have thought. Can't personally take credit for those, but um, I have to say it's about the welcome that we give to visitors and our enthusiastic volunteers who are just delighted to impart the history and the knowledge with people. And you'll find that up and down the country two weeks ago i was in lincoln my new favorite city in the uk and of course nice to hear. Castle. Good to hear. yeah I'm, I'm a convert i'm it is absolutely fascinating and lincoln castle is part of the national lottery um open week experiences as well so do check out some of the local local attractions yeah absolutely uh so people are actually keen to obviously find out more details do they simply go to nationallotteryopenweek.com is that the best place to go it's an incredibly helpful website, yes, nationallotteryopenweek.com, and you'll see all of the deals and thank yous that people are giving. You will also find a really insightful insider's guide. So people at all of these different museums and experiences are imparting their top tips and recommendations to help people get the most out of their visits. So indeed, for people who are actually interested, uh, Lincoln Castle, Lincoln, as featured on Downton Abbey, uh, is in at number 18, just ahead of the National Botanic Garden of Wales, which, uh, which has a Doctor Who connection I wasn't aware of, and indeed uh, the Secret Garden or Bondant Garden in Wales. So uh, intriguing in terms of that line of things. Uh, LotteryGoodCourses.org.uk, also presumably a, a useful website to check out for if people want to find out further information about, as you said, £30 million being raised for good causes every week. Yeah, it's just a fantastic amount of money. And it is nice to actually just sit back and look at how the good that is coming from just playing the lottery, which feels like an every day and every week thing. But actually, the benefit across the country, particularly to heritage, which I'm seeing firsthand is, is terrific. So fully on board with the massive thank you message for this whole campaign. You mentioned you're a fan of Lincoln. Obviously, that's uh, East Coast, West Coast for, for, for Bristol and so on. Are there any other places that you actually say, actually, uh, if I could split myself in more than one position, I'd like to actually be uh, attending, I don't know, Snowdonia to actually check out uh, the locations of the King Arthur Legends of the Sword? Well, as someone who's half Welsh, I think any excuse to get back to North Wales and, and the magic of Snowdonia always appeals and the castles and so on they i think they there's something like 630 castles across wales which just blows my mind every time i think about it but it does really make you think about how amazing this country is doesn't it and how much there is to do i'm always a little uh, sort of disappointed that we don't see more of the port murrayan place but maybe it's a generational thing obviously the uh, location for the prisoner back in the day but uh, that's uh, another uh, idea in, in, entirely um Let's just remind people in terms of how people can obviously continue to support this again through the National Lottery, clearly, but lotterygoodcauses.org.uk, presumably the best place to actually go to again to, to find out further information. Absolutely. And do head to the nationallotteryopenweek.com website. And that's where the full lineup of deals and specials are put out, put, set out for you between the 19th and the 27th of March. So get online and see what you can pre-book now. You're probably too young to remember when the National Lottery launched on the 19th of November 1994, but uh, I, I don't think even John Major expected £43 billion to be raised for good causes since then. So uh, I think you'll probably say it's, a bit of, it's been a bit of a success, really. 
big success story, isn't it? Yeah, which is why we are just thrilled to be involved and to be chatting with you about the, the benefits that are taking place. I'm sure it's, Paul, it's been fantastic connecting with your good self, Paul Chaviva from uh, the SS Great Britain Trust, of course. Huge thanks. Keep on keeping on and uh, stay lucky. Thank you, Alex. The Dyson Award, a really critical part of British culture these days, and indeed applications are now open for the 2022 James Dyson Awards. And to actually talk us through uh, why this is important, we're delighted to welcome a former Dyson Award winner and indeed lifesaver if you happen to be involved with uh, neonatal care. It's the fabulous James Roberts. How are you, James? I'm good, and thank you for the kind words. Okay, now share with us, for the benefit of the listener, uh, what exactly you won the Dyson Award for and how it's actually helped prevent uh, or reduce the number of premature baby deaths. Of course. Well, if if you don't know, there's about 15 million babies that are born preterm every single year. Um, I watched a a documentary that showed that because they lacked access to this type of medical equipment around the world, uh, whether it be parts of the UK, US, or places like Sub-Saharan Africa or India, um, they're effectively losing entire generations of kids. Um, It also was quite personal to me uh, because my my mum was able to access one of the first incubators in the 1960s. So without one, I I wouldn't be here. Um, I took that that problem... um, and then basically looked at why neonatal incubators are normal ones today, what the issues were with them, and why we lack access to this type of equipment, and created something that you could collapse down into a really small space, um, basically fold it away. Um, it was more cost-effective, easy to maintain, easy to use, easy to clean, all these benefits, and then created something that could be sent or accessed around the world where they're needed. Now, I mean, congratulations, first of all, on winning the actual award. I mean, what was your feeling when you actually uh, got the acknowledgement? Yes, here we are, £5,000. Congratulations, you've won the award. <laughs> I, I was actually lucky enough to win the international one, which was... Um, that's that's, that's 30000 then. 30000 yeah, that was, that, that was a... Look, I, I, was, I was straight out of university. Um, I, I'd applied to the James Dyson Award. It's something I've been following since I was 16. So I was you know, amazed that I even had something that I could apply with. Um, we got down to the, I think the final 10, they invited me to Dyson's office down in Malmesbury. They said they wanted to see the prototype and then actually, you know, it, it did what it said it did. So I went into his office, <clears throat> met, met the man himself, um, and he put his hand out and said, I've won. Um, I, I almost collapsed. It was just this amazing moment and, uh, life, life changed for me a bit, a bit then, um, got approached by some of the bigger companies, um, really got a a lot of goodwill towards the project and I was able to kick down doors where previously I couldn't and actually believe that you know you can really make this into something. Now Siren Radio is obviously based at the University of Lincoln uh, but this is an annual student design competition as we mentioned it encourages entrepreneurship and so on what would you say to somebody who might be listening to this and thinking well I've got this idea but really should I actually give it a go should I enter this what 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 would your advice be? I would say don't even think about it you know it's the award itself is so much more than than just the cash prize and people sometimes focus on that it is an amazing thing don't get me wrong but just the merits of even entering you know companies lots of people look at the award entrance every year and i know of other entrants who who didn't go as high up who have been approached by companies who've been able to actually make something something of their design make a dream into reality it gets your exposure it's it's something you can put in your cv you know it's really a a no loss situation. So 
I just 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 do it honestly. The deadline, of course, is the 6th of July, so a little time to actually go yet. But having said that, with uh, obviously all the other activities that are going on, perhaps uh, one needs to have a strategy in place. Um, just talk us through your, your own uh, aspect, James, vis-a-vis uh, -vis your, your journey in terms of putting this forward. I mean, you said how it felt like to win and all the other sort of processes within that. Uh, but again, you might have also been in a, a similar case of uh, uh, having something that you wanted to, to, to promote. You just thought, I'll give it a go. Yeah, I mean, look, these making a product is is hard. It's it's challenging, but it's also incredibly rewarding. I, I spent the first year, year and a half, going out to places where this could be used, re researching into the problem even more, spending that prize money on being able to really qualify the issue we we're trying to trying to tackle. Then set up a a company that we we got funded mid twenty sixteen. Since then, we've gone on to raised quite a large sum of money to actually make this happen um growing the team from myself to about 10 people now and the the really exciting thing is three months ago um we had the most amazing news ever which is we got our first clinical use so we actually saw a design that was on a piece of paper in front of me at university being used to help a baby's life in in the nhs we've now helped more than 20 babies and we're in three NHS hospitals, which has honestly been completely mind blowing. Um, I've still, I've still, I've still got a picture on it on my wall. It's, it's one of those moments I'll never forget. Well, absolutely, James, and indeed, congratulations once again for having secured that. Just out of interest, which university did you go to? I went to Loughborough. There you go. Okay, known for its sporting activities, but now obviously engineering as well. So they'll probably have a plaque out there in, in years to come, actually saying that James Roberts was here. If they haven't already put it up there, it's just the thought. Um, James, people listening to this, how do they actually take those first steps to uh, take part or indeed apply for the 2022 James Dyson Award? The best way to take those first steps, as you said, or apply for the James Dyson Award is, you know, pretty simply go online, jamesdysonaward.org, and you've got all the instructions there on, on how to apply. Um, it's fairly simple, but you need to make sure you are you are solving a problem. It could be a frustration in everyday life. It could be, you know, a global humanitarian crisis, but it has to start from a problem. That's the entire point of the awards. And does it necessarily need to be a technical problem? Are we looking at technology here or are we looking at possibly other areas that uh, maybe, I don't know, uh, students of the humanities might be interested in doing? I think they can apply if it's something that one is a, is a problem and you have an idea or an invention that, that could solve it, that has some aspects that show it can work. Um, and there's loads of instructions on the actual jamesdysonworld.org page on, on what they can and, and, and can't take on as an entrant. Fantastic. And for people, James, who want to find out more about, is, is it mom incubators or just MOM incubators? It, it, it's mom incubators, like the Americans spell, uh, spell it. So mom incubators. With, with, with the O for added oxygen, presumably. With the O for added oxygen, why not? <laughs> there you go. Mom incubators, many thanks. James, it's been awesome connecting with a good self. Um, I mean, are you solely connected with this? I mean, often we find that inventors, they've invented one thing, they come up with another one and another and another. I mean, are you still busily actually beavering away on the next world-saving uh, device? Yeah, look, we've got, I've got lots of ideas. I think the team around me has, has definitely pushed me to focus, which has been a good thing. But we want to take what we've done with, with, the, with our incubator, use that same kind of ethos and develop other medical products or ways to actually 
get these kind of products into people's hands. There's so many medical devices at the moment that are stuck in the 1980s. There's a massive opportunity route to really change how this industry thinks. Um, and that's that's what we're working on. So I, I want to develop what we've done in the incubator and add more onto it and, and see how we can create MUM, which is the company, into something that, that stands for something more. Fantastic. Well, uh, MUM CEO and indeed British inventor, former Dyson Award winner, James Roberts, huge thanks. Keep on keeping on and keep saving lives. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Now, the uh, key elements of life used to be, of course, purchasing a car and then maybe getting a house or a home or a place where one can actually stay. But it does seem that recent research has suggested that actually uh, becoming a homeowner might well be out of the question, with 25% of people saying that buying a house is not for them. Uh, over 80% of first-time buyers have actually been put off property moves due to the rising house prices, and indeed other prices rising as well. So to talk us through this particular research, from digital mortgage company Molo. We're delighted to welcome the awesomely talented uh, expert on property, founder and indeed chief executive officer or co-founder of Molo. That's Francesca Calesi. How are you, Francesca? Hello. Hi, Alex. I'm well. Thank you for having us. Well, great to connect with your good self. And um, I suppose in a sense, given the state of play with the world, I, I don't necessarily blame people for saying, get buying a home? No, it's not going to happen. <laughs> No, you're right. So we we pulled, we talked to a lot of, lot of people to get a sense of what they're thinking about home buying and so on in this environment. And it seems like it's uh, still a very difficult, well, two things emerge, right? So still a lot, a lot of people, even younger people, millennials are really keen on buying a home. So this whole concept of generation rent in reality is, you know, in reality, people still see home buying, home ownership as a key goal. But at the same time, the same people are very, very frustrated because unfortunately it's still very difficult. In particular, it's about affordability. It seems like um, there are still some stumbling blocks in terms of the ability for young people to put down enough deposit to buy a home, but also to be able to law, to lend, uh, to borrow enough money. So this is really a pity, and that's why we want to solve this here, Molo. Now, seeking advice can be tricky at the best of times, but it does seem as though social media scores heavily when people are actually looking to seek advice more so than perhaps the traditional areas of actually going to mortgage advisors who actually, one presumes, know what they're talking about. Yes, I think it's interesting because, you know, it's um, getting a mortgage is an important life choice. And I think it's important to get advice in the right way. Um, social media can be helpful, but can also be misleading. It's not, it's, you know, it's not by chance that, you know, there is a strict regulation around mortgages. And so our advice is always to talk to people that are actually certified, trained, and can give the right advice. And, and Molo, for example, we do focus a lot on that. We do have advisors in-house. We also built our robot advice modules, for, but getting proper advice is important because getting a mortgage is something that lasts for life. And so you really need to know uh, what you're doing and, you know, Perhaps get the right people involved. Perhaps it's not surprising then, Francesca, that two-thirds of those uh, that have been surveyed say that the actual process of buying a house makes them feel anxious, out of their depth, and one suggests that probably education is, is uh, uh, at, uh, uh, the, the main core here because terms like APR, interest rates, loan to value can be very confusing <laughs> if you're not used to that particular field. Yes, no, absolutely, Alex. I think you're, you're really spot on. And that's why Molo was born in a way. So um, effectively, it seems like getting a mortgage today, still when I even talk to my friends, they mention, oh, that's a nightmare. 
And it shouldn't be that way, right? If you think about this, mortgages were born to allow people to buy a home that a lot, otherwise many people could not buy. So it's a, it's a happy moment. It should really be a happy moment and not, not a difficult one. Yet um, the language, the jargon, the process is so convoluted and so cumbersome still today, still today in the 21st century, right? When we can click a button, get everything we want uh, so that it puts a lot of people off. So, and that's actually, it's been the focus in Molo. That's why I founded the company region. That's where Molo was born, to make mortgages easy faster, better, make it easier to get a home, faster, better, and easier, but also more affordable because, you know, today we do have the technology and the ability to make this happen, right? So everything should be simplified and at the tip of your fingertips as everything else is. Um, and so we are on a mission to make this happen. And I'm very, very happy that today we're launching also this product that is a FlexLife product that allows people to not only get um easier access for mortgages, but you'll be able to borrow more and to have certainty and predictability about the expenses, especially in a world where everything is changing every day. And, you know, uh, inflation is rising and all of that. This is a massive step, probably the right time. It was often said that actually it was a uniquely British thing that we used to actually have our own particular home. And in Europe, uh, the tendency was more to go for a rental system. Is that changing or is it still a case of now Britain tends to lead when it comes to actually feeling that we need to have our own particular houses and homes? Well, I think in Europe, and you probably understood that I'm Italian, so I'm not from UK, right, by my accent. So in reality, no. So in Europe, um, most countries in Europe still home ownership is very important. Everybody aims to buy a house. What is different from UK is that typically you buy a house and you stay there for longer. What I notice in the UK, people kind of buy a house and then they want to grow and buy another one and so on and so forth. So there are different habits. However, still home ownership is very, very important. I think um, everywhere in Europe, really. The whole notion of the property ladder, I suppose, coming into play. Um, and, and looking for that, getting the first step on the ladder, I mean, obviously, Molo looking to, to establish that, finding that first deposit, it's often regarded as the most challenging way forward. And I see that uh, a quarter of those actually surveyed, uh, unless they get financial help from their parents, again, they would feel a little bit lost stroke from that point of view. Um, is that something, again, you can provide advice and help with? Or, or is it just a case of, well, yes. sorry, we just have to carry on? No, absolutely. I think that is absolutely one out of two main problems that people find um, when wanting to buy a home. So one is having enough deposits, so money saved to, to put down against you know, the house. Um, there is, however, another problem that is often underestimated, which is the ability to, to lend the income level. So effectively, every lender has a limit in terms of how much they can lend in terms of as a multiple of the income. And so being able to leverage the income and borrow more if you want is also very important. Now, we on the deposit, um, we are very pleased actually that in our new range that we are launching today, we're able to get to lend up to 95% of the property value, which means that effectively you can just have a 5% deposit of the property value to be able to buy a home, which is quite a compelling case, right? Mm -hmm. But most importantly, I think what we are able to do is to address the second problem, which is typically the real issue for, and not many people know, but it's very technical. So by, which allows us to 
lend up to six, even up to six times the income uh, that everybody has, thanks to our fixed rate, so that we can leverage a full income. We don't need to stress test for future changes in interest rates because interest rate is fixed. So, but yes, that's what we're trying to do. So, Molo, we are on a mission to, you know, give access to home buying to everybody. And this is a really important step in that direction. So what would be your key advice then for people who might be listening to this and either they uh, they have children who might be thinking of making their first steps or indeed uh, folk who are in the first time buyer uh, scenario, what advice would you say? Would you say go to the Molo website now? <laughs> well, of course, that would be my instinct, okay? And absolutely, I think we are there to help. And even if you're not ready to, to buy a house now, we're very happy to provide advice and to help you making the right steps. More in general, I would just say that as advice, I think that buying a house is, is, is possible. And so it's enough to save a little bit. But today, uh, the world is changing, okay? So in terms of product innovation, in terms of new entrants in the market, in terms of people that really want to give access to everybody to buy a home, it is possible. So maybe go a little bit beyond the standard uh, ways, save some money, explore new challenging lenders as well, because there are multiple possibilities to make this happen. And and yes, and I think the, the world has also changed in terms of the channels, right? So for anybody to, if you go online, explore a little bit, you'll find out that there are a lot of possibility to, to make this happen. And, uh, and Molo, we are also there to help. I mean, my initial response in terms of when I saw people going to social media to seek advice on mortgages, I thought, are they insane? Is it, is it crazy? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a lot of sort of dangers within that. Yes. Presumably, actually, you'd say you need to go to reputable sources and people actually know what they're talking about. Otherwise, you could have all manner of challenges being faced with. No, no, absolutely, Alex. And this is very, very important. And so let me take the opportunity to caution everybody on this. So um, I think there is a tendency today also, you know, my kids have it to go on social media, find an answer for everything. And because we've been used to, to the fact that there are answers and probably that's true. However, in mortgages, this is super, a very complex transaction that everybody does in their life. Uh, there are a lot of factors that need to be considered, not just how, what kind of mortgage you get today, but whether this is sustainable for the future, whether this is the right mortgage for you, given your family situation, income conditions, so on. So I would definitely advise always to talk to a certified and professional advisor if any you know, suggestion is needed. You know, effectively, you can get, talk to somebody online. If you come to Molo, we have a nice chat. You can get set up a call and you can talk to any of our amazing people, which are really have been in the industry for many, many years. But also, you know, there are a lot of other, in any, any bank has people that can help. So it's one of those cases where probably social media should not be trusted and it's very dangerous, okay? It's really, really dangerous. Absolutely. I mean, I think um, all just one of those cases definitely be very wary with respect to that. Okay, so uh, people want to actually access this Property Buyers of the Future report. Uh, just share with us once again, Francesca, the website they should actually go to. Yeah, so you can go to molofinance.com and then you see there and you can download our report and then you can also explore further and see whether we have something that can help you all buy a house. Molo co-founder and chief executive officer, Francesco Carlesi. Huge thanks. Keep on keeping on. And hopefully we'll speak again in the not too distant future. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Alex.